0: Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your weekly host. I am both honored and a bit horrified today that I have the renowned leadership expert and authority Liz Wiseman here live in the studio. Liz, I say welcome, and I'm horrified only because I feel like you're my psychiatrist. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have fun. Without the benefit of the hourly rate.
1: (laughs) I know, yeah, I should send you a bill, seriously. Well,
0: Well, welcome to the studio today. Your book, Multipliers, has a place of honor behind me. Because I can tell you, uh, I've been in this business for, you know, 25 years. And you can see I've, I've been a fairly prolific reader of content around leadership development and So this is your personal de- library? This is my personal library. Wow. These, I, I was allowed to carefully curate the books that had the biggest impact on my career. Almost all of them are nonfiction. Most of them are about leadership. But I can tell you, having worked in this firm for 22 years, your book, Multipliers, has had equally if not a bigger influence on me than Dr. Covey's book, The Seven Habits. It is a masterpiece what you've written here. Thank truly, you. Truly, truly, I mean that sincerely.
1: Well, and we have a forward from, from Dr. Uh, Dr. Covey, so. Right, which is a,
0: a treasured right. forward, right? Well, it is Given a treasured passing.
1: forward, and for me, when he agreed to write this forward, um, I, I felt really honored that he would be willing to put his name um, on this piece of work.
0: And if you knew how many tens of thousands of manuscripts that have come to his office during his, you know, his life, you'd be even more honored, right? How few he actually chose to endorse. So oh, yeah, it you. is. It's
1: an absolute yeah. treasure
0: to me. And his foreword great. I enjoy reading his foreword. It really validates. It's really, really
1: validates. good. In fact, I see, I see tweets where people start reading the book like, hey, I'm going to be reading multipliers. And I can tell when they're reading the foreword because they often tweet like, I hope the rest of the book is as good as the foreword.
0: Liz, I I can't talk enough about the impact your books had on me. I've read it twice, which is rare, because I don't read most books twice. Yeah, you move in forward. I do move forward, I do. (laughs) I've only watched one movie in my life twice, actually. Wow. Um, And that was Jim Carrey's, one of Jim Carrey's movies, so I will keep the title quiet, (laughs) which one it was. But when I first read Multipliers, I was honestly a little depressed. Because it kinda of called me out, I felt like. I almost felt like it was my biography, with you keeping my name private. And perhaps it is. I won't flatter myself. Well and I
1: called it multipliers <laughs> rather than diminishers. That's Just so right. you Thank could you. say it's my
0: biography. That's that I appreciate that. Uh, when I first read it, it kinda took um, kinda took my breath away. It took the wind out of my sail because I found myself more identifying with the diminisher mm. side than the multiplier side. And then I reread it about six months later with maybe a little more uh, less ego. The book's not about me. The book's about the world. And as I started to realize, you know what? It isn't you're one or you're the other. You're not just a multiplier or you're just a diminisher. That there's hope for people like me. That it's a path. It's a continuum. That there are multiplier moments, so to speak. I- I'm excited to hear all about your research and your history around why you wrote the book, how its impact has been. But first of all, I'd like to talk about your journey. I open every one of these sessions talking about kind of how you got here today. I know it was Lyft, because you told me it was the <laughs> Lyft, but kind of where have you been? Maybe spend a few minutes talking about your history at Oracle, uh, your experience there. You talk a lot about that in the book, but share us in a few minutes kind of how you got here to the studio. Well, you know, I, I spent my whole career in
1: corporate education. Mm-hmm. And I had a, uh, I started at Oracle, and I had a very brief career as a trainer. Mm-hmm. I taught uh, people how to use Oracle software. Okay. Uh, Sort of this, the coup of my career really, is to have been this technical trainer right. uh, with right. actually very little technical background. So that was that was the story in and of itself. But then I got thrown into management. Uh, I I consider it as a child. I was like 24, 25 years old. They're like, you're now in charge of training for the company. And Larry Ellison wants a university, so go build this university. So I'm very young for a really big job, and I think it's where I became really interested in leadership because I had no idea what I was doing. I was woefully underqualified for a fairly big uh, leadership job and I spent a lot of time watching executives. And I was at Oracle 17 years running the university, running uh, the talent development function for the company. I leave and I start doing executive coaching and I spent a couple years doing that and that's where really the, the need for the Multipliers book Arose, and then I decided I would go into to research. And one of the things about my career, I always felt very comfortable moving into different parts of of leadership development and education because that was my experience at Oracle. It's like you kind of got the job before you fully had the skills. Sure, yeah. And so when um, I had this idea and I needed to write this, I thought, you know, this can't be that hard. Uh, you know, I've spent my career working with people who are professors and researchers and I don't know, that seems pretty doable. So mm-hmm. I started doing that. So I've, I've really been at the leadership development for I guess it's about 25 years. Now here's the great irony. So a couple years ago, uh, ATD, the organization ATD, um, gave me this award, the Champion of Talent Award. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of a big honor. Mm-hmm. And it's this award they give to people outside of the industry who have been like in, uh, champions of talent, like Chris Anderson, who started TED, mm-hmm. and Salman so Khan, who started the Khan Academy, and then me, and they're giving me this award, and I'm like, wow I 'm really flattered, but I'm raising my hand saying, by the way, I've spent my whole career in this industry like you are my people, but yet it was for people outside of the industry. Mm-hmm. so I guess um, I've been very helpful to the industry, but I'm um, a has been that's kind of how I took it I'm like clearly I 'm not in the corporate education <laughs> space anymore, <laughs> but I once was I once had a life. Um, on the corporate side, which is I th- really affected how I think as a researcher, an author, and
0: an educator. Well, you've kind of o- o- undersold your experience at, at Oracle. I mean, Oracle's a Fortune 50 company, I'm guessing, and you were- It was a huge job. Right. I had and a you huge had job massive there. responsibility, I'm assuming working with a lot of very seasoned leadership people with big egos and big responsibilities, and a lot of that experience really instructed your learning that's applied in the book. Is this true?
1: Oh, yeah, I got, I mean, I got thrown in, like, I got thrown into the deep end, and I got thrown to the wolves. I mean, these were, these were really, really tough people. Um, I once had someone say, uh, who had been working for me uh, for a while, he's like, wow, Liz, you are not as advertised. He goes, you come off as this like, super easygoing. Kind of like me. Nice person, yeah. yeah. And And he goes, but you're, like. You're like the real deal, tough. And, and I'm like, well, what are, you, what were you thinking? Did you not read my background? Like, I was, Oracle. <laughs> I was an executive at Oracle. Like, they don't mess around. They don't mess around. Right. And I mean, I had an amazing experience there, but it was a collection of type A driven, sure. hyper achievement oriented, really smart, brilliant, capable people who were um, who had drive, and. I loved working there, and it was this wonderful meritocracy, and I loved working for Larry Ellison. Mm. I mean, he was tough, but he was fair, mm. and um, yeah, I just felt like I had the most amazing job in the whole world. I was actually really sad to leave, but I love what I do.
0: But this isn't too shabby either. This is a good job as well <laughs> that you have now.
1: Oh, I love, I love um, getting to, to research and write and teach.
0: The premise of multipliers, one of the premises, is that multipliers are genius makers. Talk a bit about uh, why you wrote the book and, and some of the key thoughts you want people who maybe haven't read it yet or are gonna buy it this afternoon or buying it right now online. What are some of the key points in multipliers?
1: Well, you know, in some ways, the book was my post-Oracle therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it really started with this observation I had day one at Oracle. So, you know, Oracle hired for this trifecta of talent, a really smart, achievement-oriented, and, and nice. You know, and there's a lot of really nice people, but one of the things I noticed is in their hiring, sometimes they compromised on nice. Yeah, (laughs) rarely on the first two. And so I, as I entered into this, I was just so blown away by all these brilliant people I was working with. And, And I became in some ways a genius watcher, just fascinated by the intelligence of all these people I was working with. But then not too long into the experience, I start to notice some things. I'm like, wow, not everyone who's brilliant causes brilliance. Hmm. Like there are some people who are really, really smart themselves, but nobody around them is smart. And I would watch these leaders and begin, because I got thrown in, into senior management pretty early on and I'm the youngest one there, I'm watching what other people are doing. I'm like, why is it that that's one executive, like he's brilliant, but when he walks in a room, everyone like holds back. Hmm shuts down, mm-hmm. plays it safe. And and some people noticeably cower, but other people just hold back because I don't know, there's a really smart person talking and so they just defer. But then I watched another type of leader equally brilliant and capable, but somehow this leader caused brilliance. Like instead of using their intelligence as a weapon that that shut people down, they used their intelligence as a as a tool like and I saw people um, be big around them and they would be other people would be articulate and thoughtful and at their very best around leader B but leader A they're at a fraction of their capability and I just thought it was fascinating and it wasn't until I left Oracle and I started doing some coaching work and I'm coaching other executives uh, in tech often with the same kind of really smart but not necessarily aware of the impact they're having on others, that I I actually went out looking for an article in HBR. I thought, you know, someone certainly has researched this. Let me find a good article so I can help this one executive mm-hmm. understand that his intelligence isn't contagious. Hmm. And um, I went looking for something around like the multiplication of intelligence and there was nothing out there, and that's why I said, to me, it was such uh, an important, observation that I'm like surely someone has researched this and they hadn't and so i thought well that can't be that hard
0: is the difference in the two hard, people I, mean, I imagine because your book is um, research-based what makes it so credible is the difference in the person that was the genius versus the genius maker was it an intentional I mean, when you looked at them as a whole was it an intentional strategy was it unintentional was it their character had they had a good leader that modeled that what what was the difference did you see any defining differences? Yeah, you know,
1: I, I have to admit, so I'm gonna give you some confessions of a social science researcher. Is that, I do- not, not
0: appropriate in a therapy session. I'm the patient.
1: <laughs> oh, I don't get anything out of handle. this. Okay. Um, so what, when I first started looking at this, it was so binary to me. Hmm. And, and I think the first edition of the book is more focused on, you know what, there are multipliers and there are diminishers. And honest, and, and I mentioned in the first edition this idea of the accidental diminisher. Right. I don't think I understood it as as deeply as I needed to understand that. And what, you know, I I thought that there were these multipliers and these diminisher leaders and almost like I could walk through the hallways of a corporation and I could, almost like a duck, duck, Mm -hmm. goose kind of exercise, and I could sort people. And, And I think what I've learned is that this accidental diminisher, this is the norm, not the exception, that most of the diminishing that's happening in our workplaces, um, in our nonprofits, even in our churches, in our, in our homes, most of the diminishing that's happening around us is, is coming from the really, like the good guy who's trying to be a good leader. It, it's coming from the accidental diminisher. And so I've spent a lot more of my time trying to understand how is it that we end up shutting people down almost to a debilitating level while holding the best of intentions, like while really liking the person, while wanting to be a good leader, while doing the very things you think are empowering to find out that actually they're enervating.
0: Hmm. Your book has had a profound impact on our executive at Pink on Covey because I think we see in our chairman some versions of multiplication, some versions of diminishing. We read it and all began to identify with what it's like to be an accidental diminisher. When I, uh, since I've read the book, I've thought about you and it literally hundreds of times. Here's a perfect example. Just yesterday, even though I knew you were coming today to be interviewed, just yesterday, I was in a meeting with three very competent colleagues of mine. They report up through me, and independent of me, they have as much institutional knowledge or more about our content as I do. They are as smart or smarter in most areas than I am. Because they, they have expertise in their stewardships and I don't, and we were sitting in a meeting yesterday, and I was literally dictating words to them, about knowing
1: I was coming. I
0: know. I, I know Scott, I, I know, I know. But this is just you and me. No one's watching, so it's just you and me. You're just giving <laughs> fodder for our conversation. <laughs> but I, that I, I don't know that I'm that unique. I mean, I literally was dictating how to write things, and as I was doing, I was sort of having this existential crisis, which was. I am doing the exact opposite of everything Liz says to do in her book. I am dictating to them my genius on this when they could write just as smart, if not smarter, words. And I was wrestling with, well, so this, is this my value to the firm? I, am, I, am I growing them? How, how long can I do this? I mean, how am I ever going to add more value if I'm dictating sentences to you know, six-figure people-paid you know leaders in this company? And I was wrestling with, well, is this sort of... My quality standard? I'm inspiring them, or am I holding them back? And I was wrestling with, which I bet a lot of leaders do, which is my value in some ways is getting it right, right. or having it on brand with is their version good enough because they're going to take it to a different level with their skill set over time. Right. I got to think it's a common um, struggle that leaders wrestle with. Well it
1: is and the wrestle that you just went through there is a wrestle I go through you know you're saying oh man I'm doing the very things that Liz tells me not to do well I've had that exact same experience like I'm doing the very things Liz Wiseman tells me not to do and 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 the wrestle there is really what we want people to do which is am I in a situation where I should be adding value based on my knowledge and my experience? Or is this one where I should be stepping back and letting my team do this? And you know, one of the misunderstandings of multipliers is that it is a hands-off, soft way of leading. Like my job as a multiplier is to see and use and grow the intelligence of others. So I'm going to be like this neutral, non-evaluating kind of servant of the group, and I'm just going to be all about others. Well, actually that's a total misunderstanding. It's about using all of the intelligence that's available to you on your team, including your own. And and so it's not about helping other people be big by being small. You know, the best leaders know when it's time <coughs> to be big and when it's time to be mm-hmm. small. And they, they vacillate between the two. We often, um, I think, overvalue consistency as a leader, whereas I think the best leaders sometimes go big, like, hey, I've got a set of ideas. I'm going to bring them to the table. But they don't do that all the time. They also know when it's time to retreat and say, you know what, let me frame the task, make a suggestion, and then turn this over to somebody else. Versus times when you need to come in big with your own ideas. So being a multiplayer is not about being small. It's about playing your own strengths in a way that everyone else plays at their very best. You know, it's knowing how to temper some of your strengths to mm-hmm. make room for other people's. Right, right.
0: And that's kind of um, counterintuitive, right? Because I'm gonna guess the majority of leaders became a leader their first time because they were killing it, right? They were either exceeding their sales goal, their project went the best, the supply chain was the smoothest, but they were promoted because they were Perhaps recognized as the highest contributing individual contributor, they got promoted over their peers, and now they're wrestling with what got me here, isn't going to take everyone there, and you all have some self-preservation, uh, right? Because you yeah. want to be seen as being credible. You want to be value add. You don't right. want to
1: be like the empty suit. In and that. not
0: every organization values management. That's right. Like so, what do you do what if do you're you not do? like
1: writing code it's or really selling software? It's really your team software. that's
0: doing it. What do you do? So. What what advice would you give to people like me again that are you know have been trying to make their mark, but they also realize that you know, twenty eighteen leadership is about being a genius maker, not the genius yourself. There, there's a, a constant struggle there.
1: Well, I you know um, I often look at it this way: it's like at the top of the intelligence hierarchy is it's not me. the geni- oh, sorry. No, no, sorry, that's okay. not what you were going we're, on. We're gonna go way back <laughs> okay. here to okay. the very sorry. beginning on this. We're gonna start with chapter one. <laughs> no, is that that at the top of the intelligence hierarchy isn't the genius, it's the genius maker. That it is a, a form of genius in and of itself. It's, it's playing big, you know, one of my favorite um, examples of this was, um, was experience Magic Johnson had. He's a very young man. Um, so, you know, Magic Johnson, the former Lakers player, the Olympic yeah, yeah. basketball, NBA uh, entrepreneur, star, yeah. entrepreneur, incredible business leader, president of basketball operations for the Lakers. He had this experience when he was a young man, and um, it really shaped the way he led. And so you have to imagine, could you imagine being the coach to, to no. Magic Johnson no. when he's no. a high school kid? So he's a total phenom. Um, of course, he doesn't go by Magic then, he, he goes by Irvin, mm-hmm. and he's a young kid growing up in Michigan and his coach says to him, Irvin, every time you get the ball, I want you to, you'd think it might be passed, but what his coach said to him is, every time you get the ball, I want you to take the shot. And so this really talented kid took all the shots every time he got the ball, and you can imagine his team's throwing him the ball, because they've got this like phenom on their team, and the coach loves it because he's super coachable. and. The players all love it because they're winning. They're winning every game. And like, is there a high school kid who doesn't want to win? And um, so it's going great until after one game. So they're winning game after game after game. And uh, there's one game comes to an end and all the kids are leaving the gym with their parents. And young Irvin notices the faces of the parents who who came to watch their Mm. young sons play, of course. And what did they get? You know, they got sort of like an early version of, you know, Laker Showtime magic. And and he saw this and it really affected Mm -hmm. him. And, And he said, I made a decision, you know, as a young man, that I would use my God given talent to help everyone on the team be a better player. And it was actually, it was this orientation that earns him this nickname of magic. This Michigan sports writer said, you know, this guy is magic. He raises the level of play of every team that he plays on. And I think this captures the the mindset, the essence of what, of how these multiplier leaders think. Like, I'm gonna use my God-given talent to help everyone on the team be a better player. Like, I'm going to use my talent. Like, I bring something to it, but I'm gonna use it to raise the level of play for others. And, And why I think Magic sort of captures this is it's not like he did this from the sidelines. You know, it's not like he never took a shot. Uh, You know, I've actually studied his career. It's amazing. He
0: calibrated this balance quite intentionally.
1: Yeah, and and he played huge, but he played in a way that invites everyone else to play huge, and I think that's the position you want to be as a leader.
0: Say this again, because I think that's prophetic.
1: Play all of your own capability, but play it in a way that invites everyone to play all of theirs as well. And maybe, you know, maybe no one on the team was ever as good as Magic, but it, it's almost like you're, you're inviting in the capability of others. It's, it's almost like you're daring it in. But you know, if you only play your own capability, and, and you know, so many of these leaders, so many of us well-intended leaders end up diminishers because we're so busy playing the game ourselves. We're so busy. People are throwing balls at us. We're lots coming out of us. People are asking us questions. And it's not that we don't value the people around us. It's we just are preoccupied. You know, it's what happens when you're talented is people expect you to do things. And, and part of what I'm asking people to do is sort of just eyes up. Instead of just focused on here's my work, um, here's what people need of me, here's what I think, my contribution, it's like eyes up. Look at the people around you. Are they fully utilized? If not, your job is to get 100% of their capability. You're paying for 100%, you -hmm. might as well get Mm -hmm. 100%.
0: The challenge that you just gave us requires a lot from leaders. It requires self-awareness, self-reflection, a level of maturity that makes you look beyond your own contribution. It's really what Dr. Covey described as the private victory, having a secure sense of yourself and being so secure in that, that you can focus intentionally, abundantly, generously on lifting others around you. It requires a different level of maturity that a lot of leaders.
1: It does. It requires lack. awareness. It requires confidence and maturity. We find that a lot of diminishing, um, some of diminishing in its most tyrannical, narcissistic form. Of course, doesn't come from overconfidence. It comes from insecurity and underconfidence. Um, but. People have to be also comfortable in their own talents. Like, I'll tell you the person I want to work for. I want to work for the person who's an absolute genius and knows it. Like, I don't want to work for the person who's unsure of themselves, who comes into work every day trying to prove that they deserve to be there or that they're the smartest one in the room. I want to work for the person who's like, you know what, I'm brilliant. I'm a genius and I'm over it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like okay, I get it. I get what I bring. I'm confident in that, but I am now past that. Now I'm gonna spend my time, not trying to prove that I deserve to be here, but seeing what's going on around me. So it's a confidence, it's, it's an eyes up, aware of people around you. And you know, to be an intentional leader, you have to look at how your best intentions, the things that you do that you think are amazing and enabling and inspiring, how those are the very things that can suffocate the people around you. You have to ask like, hmm, I wonder if people experience me different than I experience me. You know, because it's human nature that we judge ourselves based on our intentions because right, we see right. they're visible to right. us. And we tend to judge other people based on their actions. Right. And so it's learning to say, hmm, I wonder how my intentions could be received differently.
0: Liz, I want to save some time to talk about the accidental diminishers because I yes. think that's kind of where people can move into being a multiplier. Mm-hmm. Let's talk first about multipliers. So are there a couple of tangible multiplying moments or for our guests that are watching to say, I really want to be a multiplier. How do I move into that? Are, th- are there any uh, immediate ideas or triggers or watch outs? You can tell people when you're finding yourself doing this, here's how you move into a multiplier moment.
1: Okay, great. Um, so the things that multipliers do, yeah. they, they utilize people's genius their native genius, the thing they do easily, freely. A very specific thing you can do there is, is look for people's native genius. What is it that they do better than anything else they do? What are they brilliant at? What are they head and shoulders better at? What are they going to do whether or not you want them to do? Hmm. Now you and I have both been doing this for long enough um, to have learned this. I've learned this the hard way, is that it's a lot easier to get people to do things that they're already good at than to try to get people to be good at things that they're not
0: it's and don't want right. to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, you know, you, I probably learned this mostly in my own home. Um, and, and so as a leader, what you can do is instead of trying to get people to sort of stay in the swim lanes of their job, what's their native genius? What are they brilliant at? What do they do at work, at home? Like They can't help but do it, and then find a way to put it to use in their job or at... Our-
0: well, in essence, that, that's a high-performance culture, right? If you can tap, as Stephen Covey would have said, the passion and genius of people and get it as closely aligned with the company needs, it's an unbeatable formula.
1: Oh, people will work for free. And I don't mean that we should exploit people for their native genius, but like here's my my dirty little secret, is if you ask me to do something within my native genius, oh, I'm gonna do it, I'll put it to the top of my list, I'll do it for free, like I love to do, and, and most people are this way, we just, go above and beyond. So it's not like you get 100% of people's capability. You get more because we grow. So so that's one. One very specific thing, look for people's native genius. You know you're good at this when you you sit in meetings and instead of hearing what people are saying, you're just like, "Wow, what is that person brilliant at?" Hmm. And and my my sort of um my my rule of thumb on this is if you have figured out someone's native genius, you've kind of earned the right to put them to work, and and they want you hmm. to put them to work. You don't, they don't need to report to you for you to do that. That's one. Um, the another thing that that multiplier leaders do is they don't tell people what to do. They they ask, they invite, they define possibilities, and they they invite people's very best thinking. And um, probably the most powerful shift, I think any leader can make. But it is I consider this the ibuprofen of leadership development. Like it just cures a lot of problems is is to lead by asking, to ask the questions. And my very favorite um, challenge to give someone is what I call the extreme question challenge, is to go into the one of those meetings, maybe you hit replay back to yesterday and say, what if I went into this meeting and I had, all I had in my toolkit as a leader was the question. Hmm. No statement, no contribution. Um, and..." To take the extreme question challenges, is to go into a meeting, uh, maybe it's a one on one, a management review, uh, operations review, et cetera, and, and to say, I'm only going to ask questions. And you let your team do the thinking and you frame the issues. You set the priorities by the questions that you ask. It's a really hard challenge. And, and if you're going to take this challenge, you go all the way with it. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely nothing but questions, which I don't recommend you operate permanently forever in that space, because you will creep people out <laughs> if you do this, but to take the challenge once or twice, because it, it really, I think it rewires how we think of our role. Well,
0: it also requires a long-term view, because as I think about yesterday's meeting, while I'm dictating out these 14 sentences for some ad copy for a partner of ours, I'm, I'm thinking, so <clears throat> what's my purpose right now? Am I trying to make this partnership immediately more profitable, or am I trying to build capacity where these three people can take the marketing division to new heights beyond me? And I was clearly not, not doing the second. I was trying to maximize the relevancy of this project at hand, but I wasn't really inspiring. I wasn't multiplying. I was absolutely diminishing, and I was not doing my number one job, which is to build the marketing division beyond my contribution when I'm out of it.
1: Right, and you can can take a long view in a really altruistic way, which is I'm gonna grow the people around me. And I I wanna be that kind of a leader. But if you take a little bit of a selfish view on the long term, it works just as well. In fact, in some ways, a little bit better, which is, do I want to be doing this forever
0: myself? Right. I, I was thinking like, the same thing. Like, like I I'll never
1: get to grow. If nobody around me gets to step That's up, right. if no one gets to ever be as, like, as good as I am at this, like, how do I ever get a new challenge? And so you can take a little bit of uh, a selfish point of view, a little bit of the lazy man's point of view, and it works equally well. Um, <clears throat> when I started... Uh, teaching this i was really thinking about how do we help leaders like become liberators to the people around them like become these multipliers that give people space and allow them to step up and take ownership and contribute and go big and what an incredible liberating force that will be for their team but what i underestimated is how liberating it is for the leader
0: mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so I was working with um, a man named uh, Dave Havlick, who was head of investor relations for Salesforce. And he came to one of our multipliers workshop and he decided he was going to take a multipliers challenge, one of these specific things. And he decided that at his first opportunity, he was going to sort of hand it back to his team and ask questions and give ownership back to his team. That night, an email comes in that's like, Dave, Dave, hey, have you? We've been waiting on you for this staffing plan. They had a big set of deliverables coming up, and he was supposed to put a staffing plan together for his team. And like, we're we're kind of waiting on you, boss. Like, how often have you gotten these emails? Every manager has gotten dozens and dozens of these. We're waiting on you. We need this from you. And he decides he's going to instead of staying up till two in the morning, you know, and getting it done, he's Turns back to his team, he's like, "Okay, you know what? Can you guys put together a plan that's going to allow us to get through this six-month like um, hump of activities?" And and his team's like, "Yeah, we got this." And so I write this up, um, of, like this impact it had on his team. I write it up for an article for HBR. I asked Dave to review it, of course, before I send it off. And he goes, "Liz, you kind of missed something." And as an author, I'm like, "Oh, what did I miss?" And he goes, "You described." how liberating this was for my team to be able to step up and take ownership and get this done and what a brilliant job they did. He said, but you missed its impact on me. He goes, this was hugely liberating for me. He goes, I used to work till two in the morning on a regular basis. I could never keep up. There was never enough of me to go around. He goes, I am a totally different leader and a person because of this. I'm not like on the critical path Mm. for everything.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, when we liberate our teams, we also get liberated. We get this time rebate back, and, and we allow ourselves to grow into bigger roles as well. And who doesn't like that?
0: Uh, I don't want to overuse the word genius, but I think the genius that you brought from your you know 35, 40 years of experience. The research. Forty you, years I'm of sorry, experience sorry, in life. In um.
1: Life. Okay. Oh in yeah, li- I've what, definitely got yes, forty years of experience. The research
0: in life. you bring to the book is um, like my good friend Seth Godin. Mm you have similar uh, insights and talents with Seth, which is a compliment to both of you. Seth does something you do extremely well, and that is you, you name things that people like me were drowning in that couldn't identify in order to conquer, or at least identify in order to self-identify and move out of it. Does that make sense? Like yeah. you, this idea of being an accidental diminisher, you've named five or six or seven of them, and I can identify a little bit, I'm a hypo- hypochondriac now when it comes to leadership. I, I'm some of this, I'm some of that. Oh, but you know what? Sometimes I have some multiplier moments. I think the, the part of the power of your book is is you help me identify by naming things that before that I didn't have context for.
1: Well, I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, you know, I, I can't claim to be a great writer. I've, I've, I do my own writing, but what I, I spend a lot of time thinking about are names. Like, how do you describe this phenomenon in a way that people can access it and and think about it and understand it. And part of that naming is so we can see it ourselves, like, oh, that's what I'm doing. Oh, I'm I'm diminishing or I'm accidental diminishing, which is even more subtle and in some ways more dangerous. But also when we give things names that we all experience, when we now have a name for it, we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. And that's how you not just change individuals, it's how you change cultures. like We can't talk about it until we have names. It's one of of the favorite comments I've got from, uh, I was getting ready to go speak at a company. It was a large company um, in the Midwest and the head of HR said, we are so excited for you to come out. I'm like, oh, great. And she said, here's why. Because when you come out, it's going to allow us to have a conversation Mm. that we've needed to have for Mm. years. With the CEO, it she says it's a sense. conversation it that we sense. we just haven't been able to talk with him about this because you're going to come and give us a language and yeah. a framework, mm-hmm. and then, and I hear that people say, "Wow, well, we're still talking about this years later because they have a, a
0: language." Um, this idea of of gifting a language to an organization sounds ethereal, but nothing is more practical or applicable, actionable.
1: Well, and it has to be a language that that we can work with and. Um, I had a, a coaching client, client who said, uh, he said, Liz, we were talking about his genius and he's kind of like, I'm going to put it back on you. And he's like, I'll tell you what your genius is. And he's like, you, you're a truth teller. You, you, you tell people the truth, but you do it in a way that people can hear it. And I actually think it's a really important skill I think for it's all r- leaders I think it's right on. to have is like, how do you talk about something in a way that we can hear it? Because if you come and tell me I'm a bad leader and that I'm not doing all of these things that I'm supposed to, or that I'm a diminisher, like I naturally shut down. But when we talk to each other about the ways that we accidentally diminish, Mm -hmm. it it opens up a conversation. Um, Similar to the way we talk about, um, you know, now we're we're spending a lot of time thinking about our unconscious biases. Like, you know, no one wants to be biased. But when we talk about how sometimes um, with the best of intentions we can end up, doing something we don't mm-hmm. want to. Mm-hmm. It, it's its a way people can hear it. And so it's really, it's the conversation I want people to be having across our companies. And, and you know, here, here's something that I've noticed. It's, it's kind of crazy. I, I've now been at this for uh, about eight years. And the companies that really uh, go the distance with the ideas, who have real impact with these ideas that build a culture of high contribution and, and multiplying are not the ones that talk all about multiplying. You know, they're not the ones that would like take the book and put it on the p- wall and put posters and, and you know, run trading programs. Like those things are, are helpful, but it, they're the companies that talk about diminishing. Where the conversation about like your accidental diminisher tendencies and my accidental diminisher tendencies, like I'm an idea guy, I'm an optimist, like every now and then I get into rapid responder mode. Like when that is not like my hidden secret, like everyone on my team knows right, it. Right. They like, they laugh about right. it and, and it's in the air. So mm-hmm. like everyone can know and sort of laugh mm-hmm. about the CEO's
0: mm-hmm.
1: diminishing tendencies. When those conversations are legitimized, it actually allows multiplier behavior to get more normalized. Uh,
0: speaking of CEOs, you <clears throat> and I've talked, we've, we've been friends for a while and uh, we've talked about the impact your book had on our CEO, Bob mm. Whitman, who I think, uh, you know, for being an expert in our industry, right? And, and you'd think that the CEO of England Covey <laughs> would have some expertise, and he certainly does. And I've talked to you about how fond I am of him personally and professionally. Mm. Uh, I think beyond the seven habits, multipliers, from my experience with Bob Whitman for 22 years now, I think your book has had the largest noticeable influence on Bob's uh, behavior and his mentality. Because like all of us, he can accidentally fall into these diminishing capabilities or capacities. And your book gives permission to recognize where you are accidentally diminishing mm-hmm. and kind of always be pointing towards becoming a multiplier.
1: Oh, you know, it, of course it makes me so happy. and you know honestly when I was writing this book I, I did not have the Bob Whitman's in mind. I'm thinking about like the tyrannical narcissistic right. bullies when I'm first writing this book and I'm thinking about um, you know someone like the Silicon Valley leaders I had worked with. I wasn't thinking about its impact that it would have with leaders who were already amazing leaders mm-hmm. find. T- mm-hmm. um, so it thrills me and I really do see this message not being, um, and I, I see, I've see. i come to see the utility of the book not being for like, how do we help the really terrible leaders become decent leaders? Well, you,
0: you identified most of us kind of in that middle zone. It's yeah. sort of like Stephen M.R. Covey, who wrote the Speed of Trust. Yes. Part of the magic of his book is he has these 13 behaviors of high trust leaders. Yeah. And he talks about, here's what the trust behavior is, tell the truth, and here's the opposite, lie. Right. But in the middle is the counterfeit, which is sort of, you know, to spin and, Tentatively tell the truth, but leave the wrong impression. For you, by identifying accidental diminishers, it's not I'm a total, you know, you know what, and I'm, or I'm the perfect leader. It's a lot of us find ourselves well-intended in that middle zone of diminishing by accident and we don't wanna do that, we wanna be a multiplier.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up Stephen M. R. Covey's book, The Speed of Trust, because uh, it was funny, I was in a conversation, like a family event and I overhear my mom talking and my mom was my first round editor for the book. Mm. Like I would write stuff, it was like back to high school, like I'm writing, a mom, could you read my essay before I turn it in? Because it didn't occur to me that I could turn in a manuscript to Harper Collins that still needed copy I editing. The, the copy editors at HarperCollins were like woefully that's underutilized. The you, right? yeah, they, <laughs> they said we've actually never seen a manuscript like that. And I'm like, ah, that's just flattery. Then a couple years later they're like, no we actually have never seen a manuscript this clean. Because I gave it to my mom and I'm like, mom, like, fix my typos, fix everything up. And So my mom had read this through several times and I hear her at this
0: For point, grammar and punctuation more so than content.
1: Well and content okay. as well. So I Okay, I'm now on a sidebar to a sidebar to, okay. an, to answer this question, but my mom and I actually wrote a book together called The Multiplier Effect, which was written for educational leaders. I my see. mom is a former principal, yeah. so she knows the content really well. We're at, a, we're at this family gathering. I overhear her, she, I hear Elizabeth and Multipliers. Like, and she says, you know, if I could sum up Elizabeth's book, she calls me Elizabeth, like she wouldn't know who Liz is, hmm. but um, she said, if I could sum up Elizabeth's book in one word, it would be trust. Isn't that interesting? And I was kind of like, wow, how come you didn't mention that? Like when you were like editing all those things, you kept that observation to yourself. But I really do, I think it hinges on this idea of trust. And, you know, um, you ask like, what are the things people can do to, to be multipliers?" You know, name the genius in others. Uh, ask the questions. Create space for people to make mistakes. Give ownership to others. Give someone 50% of the vote. Um, you know, after you help, remember to hand back things. These are all things we could do but they're based on a fundamental assumption and and the best I could capture the assumptions of the diminisher and the multiplier is the diminisher assumes that nobody's going to figure it out without me. Without me. Me in the middle or me out in the lead whereas the multiplier assumes that people are smart and are going to figure it out. It's really no more complicated than that and it's actually kind of a an offshoot of Carol, Carol Dweck's um, growth mindset. It's like, it's, you know, Carol's work has been about what is the assumption we have about ourselves? And does it allow us to learn and grow and take on new challenges and adapt? But in some ways, Multipliers is saying, what's the assumption we have about the other people? And when you assume that other people are fundamentally like smart, Mm -hmm. intelligent creatures, well, what do you do? you're trusting their work and it's about extending responsible levels of of trust.
0: You realize the team I lead is now all unionizing up in corporate marketing. When I walk back up there they're gonna call me out.
1: They're gonna be Scott, trust <laughs> us, trust us.
0: Let's um, talk about accidental diminishers. Yes. Because I think that's the best way to be get get on the path to multipliers. You name seven or eight of them and the first one I read of course is Idea Guy or Idea Gal. You have Guilty. Always on, rest. You know what? That's first
1: on the list. Why? Oh, that's like me confessing. Like you know they're they're not alphabetical. They're not in like order of prevalence, like that's, that's my coming out of the gate with, I'm a massive idea guy. I constantly have to keep this under control.
0: I have to tell you, when the book was first given to me a year ago, it was- Was it
1: turned to that page?
0: It was not, because here's what happened. It was given to me to use on someone else <laughs> to say, look, so-and-so needs to read this. And like any human, I could jump on that bandwagon. Right. That's why it was given to me to kind of form a Mm -hmm. coalition to say, so-and-so needs this book. I read the book and the thought never crossed my mind to think about the other person because the way you wrote it, it spoke to me. And I immediately went introspective on, I don't care about the person that this person is talking about. I resonated with, oh my gosh, I am the idea guy. I am the guy that's valued. It makes
1: me so happy that you said that because it was one of my worries is that people would read this book and be just as a t- pointing as a tool. fingers. Right. So I think I I really doubled down. Mission on Mission accomplished.
0: This. It had Thank the you. opposite impact for me. Right. I mean because you can see people want to point the finger and blame other leaders. Even yeah. mature leaders want to hold their boss accountable. As soon as I opened it up, and I I thought, oh my gosh, I am the classic case of the idea guy. I, I'm known as being fairly creative and, um, and an idea a minute, and so the spaghetti wall, throw it up, see what sticks, most of it will. Okay, Which one so, do we pick? so let's
1: work with this, because let's kind of um, look at the anatomy of, of an accidental diminisher tendency. It's about your best intention. So, what is it that you like? What's the goodness that you think is going to
0: come out of it? Because the intention is so noble here. Rescue is that my ideas will be so profound and innovative and new that I can help to solve a problem, and our EVP of HR tells me I play the role of rescuer by being the idea Which guy. Which is
1: another accident. We, we're, <laughs> I, you're conflating know, too. We're I gonna know. have to separate But I have multiple
0: characteristics. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, the idea guy, Like we want to get the party started. We're yeah. like, you know what, we don't think our ideas, we think our ideas are good, but we don't think they're the only ideas. I'm gonna toss out some ideas to get things- Germinating. Germinating and going and, and we toss them out thinking other people are gonna then take them and use them as springboards and maybe get to somewhere else. But now let's look at how this impacts other people. So what, like, what's it like? Have you ever worked for an idea guy, like someone who like, sort of trumps your level of idea guy?
0: Not necessarily. I've worked for some of these other ones, but...
1: Yeah, well, this is what it's like to work for an idea guy. Has, has your team explained this? Like, what it's like to be around... ...the oh, fountain of ideas. They do every day. The of ideas. Do every day. What's I the experience know. for them?
0: I can't say it. Keep going. Okay. Fatiguing.
1: Yeah, it's fatiguing it's, because... It's, it's
0: constantly chasing the next project simultaneously. Which one do I work on? Because you've got 10 things I'm working on.
1: Here's this crazy thing about management, is that most of us think that managers are like... Uh, egotistical, power-hungry kinds of folks. I found in, in my coaching and teaching work that actually most managers underestimate their power. You're probably mm-hmm. underestimating your power. When you're tossing out ideas, you forget that you're the boss and that when you toss out, hey, well, why don't we think about this? Why don't we try that? You know what people do? They take you seriously.
0: It is so true. I think, that, in fact, the CEO would say, he wouldn't because he's gracious, Scott Miller is one of the most powerful people at Franklin Covey. Because he can get anyone to do anything and half the time it might be right and half the time it might be wrong.
1: Yeah, and it's one of these ones where just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. And and like with power comes all this responsibility of, of restraint. And
0: Well, now you tell me 20 years
1: (laughs) (laughs) And And we forget that people take us seriously. And we think Mm -hmm. we're just like tossing out Mm -hmm. ideas, like, you know, just... Processing
0: uh, outwardly and...
1: Yeah, you know what, I'm thinking aloud, I'm tossing out ideas, I'm getting things going, but people are taking you seriously. And they're running with it, and you're exhausting your team. And they're soon making, like, a millimeter of progress in millions of different directions. Mm -hmm. And it's exhausting, and people end up just going, you know what, I'm actually just going to stop chasing rabbits, and stay right where I am. You've oh.
0: exactly described my world. How common is that when you consult to companies around the world? Is it unique to Franklin Covey or my division? No,
1: it, it, it's, it's, in certain industries, the idea guy is even more prevalent. It's not one of the top three. I'll tell you what the top three are, but the, the thing with the idea guy, you have to remember, is, because we're not done with you just yet. See, I know this because I so really struggle with this one, <laughs> is, is that people tend to get idea lazy around people who are idea-rich. Like, okay, is it easier for, mm-hmm. if I actually have to come up with an idea, do I sit in my office and think, or do I just walk down to Scott Miller's office? Mm-hmm. Because he's a fountain of ideas. And that fountain goes off, like, every hour, or... Versailles. Or, or, or <laughs> ha- every half hour, you know? Like, there's an idea, you know, flow there. And and so I'll just take his ideas. Yeah. And so suddenly hmm. you become...
0: I've created a dependent culture. You've
1: created a dependent of culture and a hero culture. very independent people. And right. it's it doesn't take much to spawn rescuing. Rescuing is- Did you call it a
0: hero culture?
1: Yeah, a Mm -hmm. hero culture. So um, the three accidental diminisher tendencies that we see most often, rescuer. Rescuer is in the top three. And of course the rescuer is, this is the big hearted leader. The intention is of course I want to help and save. Like I want, and these are really good people and, and noble intentions, I want the people around me to be successful. Like, nobody fails on my watch. Um, but the, res- you know, the rescuer often steps in too early or too often and people do become dependent. Like, one of the things that we have to develop as a leader is the ability to stand back and watch people fail. Mm-hmm.
0: Which, is, which is intuitively obvious and culturally challenging, especially in a for-profit company when you don't have a lot of elasticity. Right? I mean, you're either running by quarters, you have goals to meet, and you don't have a lot of bandwidth, or rather... Um, you can't afford you the can't failure. You can't afford the failure. Right. Too so, big.
1: Which is one of the things that you have to do as a, as a multiplier leader is identify where people can take risks. One of the things I love to do is work with um, a leadership team and look at all parts of their business, where is it okay to fail, and where is it not okay to fail. And we get a really clear waterline. Jim Collin calls this like the Mm waterline where you can shoot cannons and where you can't and you get really clear on where's the space where we can't fail like great know it tell your people you know what no failure here I will rescue you here Mm. like I will throw myself over that to save the day because that's that's below the water line that will take us down Mm. but see this place up here where it is okay to fail go big take risks and I'm not going to rescue you in that space.
0: Liz, our time's closing in on us. You mentioned three prominent uh, diminishers. What's the third? Uh, pace setter. I love that one. <laughs> yeah. Love it because I can identify with it. Lots <laughs> of us love
1: it. And and it's leading by example. Describe I'm, the pace setter. The best intention here is I am going to model the way. I'm going to set the pace for quality or for customer service. For I'm productivity. To, for productivity. I'm going to model the behavior, leading by example, how we've been told to do this. I'm going to model the way I will be the role model for the team. Other people will notice and they will do likewise. They'll follow. But what we find is when the leader gets out ahead of her team, people don't tend to speed to catch up. They they watch. In some ways, they stargaze. It's like people are like watching you do your thing. You know you're in this mode when people tell you, oh, like you're amazing. You know, if I ever get that sense of someone says, oh, you're amazing. I'm like, oh, that's, that's pace setter. That's great advice. Territory. People are like, hey, let me know if you need help. Next time you let me. You know, when we lead by setting the pace, we more often create spectators than followers. Mm. People aren't with us; they're watching us. It's a very, very different dynamic. It creates a huge gap. The um, the third is the rapid responder, like on it.
0: You know. Um, Get, Every email responded to. Every email is responded to. Clearing
1: out your inbox. It text messages. You know, your fingers are kind of attached to a keyboard. You're like, so smell I a sunglasses. problem.
0: I need a hat. Solve a problem.
1: <laughs> and, and our technology is enabling us to do this. This is one where we almost have to collectively disarm from some of this rapid responder. But um, we think we're keeping our organization moving really fast, but the, what we actually do is create um, lethargy around us and people. Wait, like if they know you're a rapid responder, let's say it's sent to, like, a request is sent to me. It's my area of responsibility, I'm on your team. It's clear, everyone knows it's my area of responsibility, but they also know you're copied on that email. We all know Scott's gonna get to this first. So what do I do? Because I don't want to get out of sync with my boss. Right. Nobody likes to right. have said right. yes when the right. boss said no. Right. So we hold back and we're like, Scott's on it, I'll let him do it, he seems to like this. And then suddenly you can't figure out why no one on your team is stepping up and taking ownership because you're moving too fast. I'll I'll tell you maybe a quick workaround for for, for that one and and maybe the others. If you're a rapid responder, um, wait 24 hours. Like if something is sent to you, you're made aware of something, wait 24 hours for somebody else to jump on it. My rule of thumb is if I've waited 24 hours and no one's jumped on it and they should have, then I'm all over it. Mm. Um, You know, if you are...
0: But that's one way to be genius makers is letting other people bring their genius to it and solve it versus you having to solve it for everybody else.
1: Yeah, and that's why I need these little workarounds because these accidental diminisher tendencies in and of themselves are not bad. They're all virtues. But if they're left um, unguarded, if we're unaware of them and we don't have a little workaround, um, you know, like I'm an optimist. No one on my team really wants me to be an awful pessimist, but I have to have a workaround. My workaround to my optimism is I learn to signal the struggle.
0: Share your what concept about, uh, you, you, you talked, I think, in a podcast about, as of being an optimist, you talked about recognizing hard work and that things are hard.
1: Yeah, I, I learned Share to that. signal the struggle. So I am, the, the optimist is like a positive, can do kind of leader. Like, we see possibilities. For me, I think it comes from my early days at Oracle where I was just thrown into big jobs. You're like, hey, this can't be that hard. And we tell ourselves we're smart, we're capable. Like, these are leaders who probably wear these like, wristbands that say we can do hard things. Hmm. Um, no one wants me to be a downer but what the people around you want to hear is hey guys what we're doing is hard it's hard we're going to struggle with this we're probably going to make some mistakes and I know this is anathema to certain people to even hear this is you have to be able to say like we might fail at this and it's so interesting that once the leader signals the struggle Like I get it that it's hard, it actually allows the team to move beyond it. Because if the leader only sees the upside, what is the rest of the team relegated to do? Obsess about the downside. So when the leader acknowledges the downside, what does it do? It like allows the team to say, okay, we get it. Now let's go make this work. Let's go get the win on this. I've had to do this because I'm like, optimism is deep in my
0: my bones. This may sound corny, but in many ways, multipliers is your gift to making um, geniuses genius makers because when we when I when I read this I'm not a genius at any stretch but it's really inspired me to be more thoughtful and deliberate and intentional about being the hero about being the genius saving the day rapid responder uh, pace setter rescuer always on idea guy. I mean, I can identify with all of those. And your, your big point is, is that you're well-intended, but unless you have a sort of a raised consciousness about those, you become, you can become. Uh,
1: a genius with no friends, a genius who wonders like why no one else on the team hmm. can do what you do. It's about getting everyone leveling up.
0: In our final minute, Share your thoughts around how you resist being a diminisher. I I, I read and I heard a podcast where you mentioned you'll come into a meeting and you'll think you have the solution Mm -hmm. and you'll take a little bit of restraint. You you write things down versus say them, talk about that.
1: I'll tell you like my personal strategies that I have to use a lot. um, I love think on my feet kinds of sessions. i realize not everyone does. So uh, one of the things I do to help everyone be able to contribute in the moment is I've learned to send agendas out in advance. And instead of saying, hey, here's our agenda and the topics, I send out questions. Like, here are the questions. Come in ready to weigh in on these questions. Um, I'm constantly having to play fewer chips. Um, I try to go into extreme question mode. Uh, Usually when I go into extreme question mode, it's when something has gone very, very wrong. We have a crisis. Or when something's gone really right. Because it's really easy when someone brings you a success and they've just had something amazing happen. Like when your daughter wins the math contest at school. This is where I first learned this. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Blah, 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 blah. And like suddenly it's about me. And I've learned when someone brings you a brilliant success, like just ask them, so what happened, what What did you do? How do you feel about that? What you? And it becomes their success and you get to mm. sort of revel in it with Versus them. Versus co-opting it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very easy to co-opt mm-hmm. it. Just like it's easy to co-opt a problem and take on ownership. So those are a couple things that, that I try hard to do and I have tried really hard to see the native genius in people uh, around me, and particularly with my children. And I think, you know, it's funny, I wrote this book based on research, I wrote it for the business community, but for me, like the gift it's given back to me-
0: Oh, I can see, yeah, yeah.
1: Is I feel like I have been a very different kind of parent Mm. because of this, and I don't know if I've used what I've learned about leadership to be a good parent, or what I've learned about being a parent, because you just get punched in the face all the time. Like, when you do it wrong at work, nobody tells you. They talk about it behind your back. But when you do it wrong in your home, they punch you in the face with it. You know, they're like, Mom, stop it. You know, um, these aren't your friends. These are my friends, Mom. (laughs) And um, I feel like I have really come to see the the native genius of each one of my children and like my job is to not turn them into something they're not hmm. my job is to see who they are and help them Lift figure them out up, yeah. yeah what to yeah. do with that yeah. that's been my gift
0: Liz your um, your company's name is called the Wiseman Group mm-hmm. you spend most of your time writing and speaking i think you're probably one of the most prolific speakers on the circuit around the world right now I see with the World Business Forum and speaking most of the conferences. If someone wants to adopt the Multipliers content, what's the best way to kind of get their feet wet?
1: Well, there's uh, the website for the book, multipliersbooks.com.
0: Multiplierbooks. Multipliers. A- books. Multipliers. Books. Books. .com. So it's okay. plural
1: on both. We actually have um, this book, which is oriented sort of to business and lots of different environments, and then we have the Multiplier Effect for school leaders. Right. right. And, um, or the Wiseman Group.com. I'm at Liz Wiseman on Twitter. We're not very creative. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you're keynoting mainly in organizations, associations. If someone wants to bring you in to keynote a conference or a company, you're doing that quite frequently, is that right? Yes, yeah. yes,
1: and you know, sometimes it's with a company, sometimes it's with uh, a conference, and a lot of times it's at universities. I love universities, I, I love being yeah. on university yeah. campuses. and. Um,
0: Anybody can see if you go into the YouTube and see some of the videos of you. I think you should be a great keynote at our conference as well, too, because our company, uh, although everybody is well-intended here in living our content, I think multipliers could have a great benefit at Franklin Covey, which is why the CEO is so interested in your content. I'm honored. What a great time I've had listening and being thoughtful about how I can move more towards the multiplier side and and uh, unload some of my diminishing baggage on my team.
1: Well, it's so fun for me, and because you have just modeled exactly what we want every reader and what I want myself to keep doing, is just asking the questions, what might I be doing?
0: that's diminishing. Text my wife that, that I'm modeling. (laughs) Model student, (laughs) Scott Miller. Liz, thank you very much. Hope to have you back someday. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Hope today was valuable and inspired you. I used myself as a bit as an example so that you might feel a little less burdened and we're on the path to becoming multipliers more intentionally. Thanks so much for your time and we will see you back here next week with our next guest. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz.